I'm Amrit Swali. And I'm Ben Horton. And you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Undercurrents. Thanks for joining us. And I'm very excited today to be introducing you to one of our new co-hosts for Undercurrents. Over the next few episodes, you'll be hearing several more voices, not just my boring tones. So delighted to introduce you today to Amrit Swali. Amrit, hi, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you, Ben. How are you? I'm really well. Yeah, thank you. Why don't you tell the listeners a bit about your role at Chatham House and and what you're working on at the moment? Sure. So I'm a project coordinator with the International Security Programme at Chatham House. I'm currently working on a number of projects relating to cybercrime and cybersecurity and just cyber policy in general, which are all very, very exciting. What about you, Ben? What are you working on? Well, I've uh, obviously been working on the podcast. It's all I think about. (laughs) Um, but when I'm not thinking about the podcast it's been some quite exciting times recently for the journal of Chatham House International Affairs we've just published a new special issue which is out online now free to download we'll include the link in the show notes and it's a special issue that looks at environmental peace building which is really interesting it's a kind of intersection between climate change and environmental politics and also security and conflict and, and thinking about how those issues kind of join up together so that's pretty interesting but we're not here today to talk about environmental peace building we've got two really interesting interviews lined up Amrit who did you speak to this week? I spoke to Rob Yates who is the director of the Global Health Programme and executive director of the Centre for Universal Health Coverage here at Chatham House. We spoke about this term vaccine nationalism which has been gripping the news and a lot Mm. of people all over the world in the past few weeks and it was a very interesting conversation. But Ben, who did you speak to this week? So I spoke to Juliet Skingsley, who is a visiting fellow in the International Security Programme, working alongside Amrit. And Juliet is an expert in the international law surrounding how militaries engage with what's called the grey zone, this kind of field of operation that is not quite all out war and not quite peace and thinking about how the military behaves in that sphere and what sort of law exists to kind of regulate what they do in that space. But we're going to hear first from Rob and Amrit. And uh, Amrit, what did you begin by speaking about? So last week, as I'm sure many of your listeners will know, Ben, Chatham House hosted Secretary of State Matt Hancock. In his speech, he outlined an agenda for the UK's G7 presidency, and there was quite a bit of focus on health security, as I'm sure we would expect. But he also spoke of this need to reject protectionism and narrow nationalism. So I began by asking Rob what that really means as we enter the vaccine phase of the pandemic. We're in a good place going into 2021 that we now have the tools at our disposal to really tackle the pandemic. And obviously, that being these vaccines that have been discovered and and a good number of them as well, which is fantastic. But it's vital that if humanity is going to overcome this crisis, that we do this collectively. We do this as a global perspective 
And this talk of vaccine nationalism is that countries are not behaving like this at the moment. They're putting their own populations first. And this is very dangerous, not only in terms of, you might say, geopolitics and, and people getting very annoyed that people are putting themselves before their neighbours, but from an efficiency point of view as well, a public health point of view, the World Health Organization Director General, Dr. Tedros, has said, you know, that no one is safe until everyone is safe. So it's against our interests to be ensuring that we have full population coverage here in the UK, whilst in other countries the virus continues unabated. Because this is the worry about mutant variants of the virus now coming into our shores, which potentially might be resistant to the vaccines that we have already. So it's in all our interest that we get rid of this across the world. Just following on from that, it seems that there is a case to be made that nation states perhaps have a duty to protect their own citizens. Of course, when you consider that the UK has ordered somewhere around 360 million vaccine doses for a population of 67 million, it does seem a bit like excessive hoarding. But how do we balance the need to look after our own citizens with this bigger global need to eradicate the pandemic and work collectively, as you say? It is a difficult balance, and, and you're absolutely right that leaders you know, have a responsibility to protect the health of their own people. One needs to be clear that countries like the UK don't have these vaccines in stock at the moment, as it were. A lot of these contracts are for vaccines that haven't been made. In fact, many of them haven't even been approved yet. So when you hear these statistics of 360 million doses, they don't exist yet, but there are orders in place for them to come. So it is very important that those vaccines are distributed equitably across the world. And we are seeing countries like the UK now saying that they are going to be generous in handing out these vaccines to other countries and to facilities like WHO has set up the COVAX facility, which is a sort of distribution system around the world. But it would be much better had that been the approach taken in the first place. That again, looking at it from a whole of humanity perspective, rather than nation states forging contracts with suppliers and deciding themselves you know, who they're going to vaccinate first around the world, that this be done on much more of an objective and an equitable criteria by organisations like CEPI and Gavi and the World Health Organisation that have set up COVAX. So you are seeing, I think, signs of improved solidarity down the line, but that's very much on the terms of the wealthy countries. It doesn't look good that countries like ours are saying, we're going to go first, we're going to make sure we're all covered, and then we're going to look to cover the rest of the world. It would have been much better had this been done collaboratively on a global scale right from the outset. So why do you think we're in a position where this approach hasn't been taken? Does it say more about the relationship between public health provision and pharmaceutical companies that we've not really been acting within the global interest? Or is it more to do with a government's understanding of global health provision and public health generally? I think it is symptomatic of, say, bigger problems around access to medicines. 
And we've seen this situation before with, say, HIV medicines back in the 1980s and 1990s, where they did become available relatively quickly to large numbers of people in wealthy countries. But where the majority of the infections were, which is in particular in sub-Saharan Africa, people were denied access. So that was a, a situation. There were challenges to the intellectual property rights of, of companies to produce these medicines and have a monopoly on them. And it was the work of civil society organizations to insist that the prices come down and that manufacturers in India were able to produce them and supply them into the African market at greatly reduced prices. So we have been in this situation before of a very fragmented system resulting in shortages of supply and very high prices. And we seem to be in this situation yet again when it's come to not only COVID vaccines, but, but potentially COVID treatments too. And I think that we need to reflect on the way that medicines are discovered and, and manufactured. And it might be that we need to look at new models that will, say, pool these technologies. And there have been specific recommendations to do this in a COVID pool of intellectual property rights at the World Health Organization that will mean that manufacturers will be able to sort of take these molecules and this great scientific knowledge and manufacture them, but pay a royalty to the people who discovered them. So I think that this fragmented system that we have at the moment, which is very sort of profit-driven, might need revisiting unless we can really get our act together to vaccinate the world this year. This leads on quite nicely to an incident that happened or that has been unfolding over the past couple of weeks between the EU, AstraZeneca and the UK. So last week, the UK almost descended into its first crisis of its new trading era with the EU when AstraZeneca told the European Union that it wouldn't be able to supply the number of vaccines it had initially promised. Of course, the European Commission then began looking into options to stop the export of vaccine doses from mainland Europe to the UK over concerns that contractual agreements between the UK and AstraZeneca were being fulfilled, perhaps at the expense of the agreements between the EU and AstraZeneca. I don't think either of us want to go into the legalities of that incident, but I wondered if you could tell us a bit about how pharmaceutical companies look towards allocating vaccines. I mean, despite how quickly we've developed a vaccine relative to other health crises we've seen, is it perhaps naive to think that the rate of distribution and access could be similar? And do we perhaps expect too much of an industry that is in need of a bit more regulation from international institutions or governments? This is very difficult and very controversial. And obviously, there has been this enormous storm at the beginning of the year, very unfortunate between the United Kingdom and the European Union over vaccines. And again, I think, you know, that, that it is indicative of a system that, that isn't working particularly well. And rather than have these disputes between governments and pharmaceutical companies and, and companies having to sort of choose really which orders to fulfill first, and this ending up in the courts, you know, potentially delaying this distribution of vaccines even more and escalating global tensions, much better when you have a crisis of a global nature like this, 
that you do have more of the procurement done internationally by the likes of COVAX. And this is exactly why the WHO and Sepi and Gavi set up COVAX, to avoid things like this happening. So I feel that had we in the UK and the European Union taken COVAX much more seriously last year, we wouldn't have got into this situation and that we could potentially have overcome it. And what's particularly alarming is that with the vaccines very scarce at the moment, the likelihood of this happening again and escalating, I think is really quite high from the whole of humanity perspective. It would be much better done on a global scale, I think, driven by WHO. You've mentioned COVAX a couple of times. Could you perhaps tell us what that initiative is and how it aims to work on a practical level? COVAX was set up pretty quickly, I think, envisaging the importance of a global distribution of vaccines that's done equitably according to need. It's almost if you were to look at this from the whole perspective of the world's population, this would be the sensible thing to do, to have basically a sort of a giant buying consortium that countries pay into this pools system. And then with that enormous buying power that I believe it's Gavi, I think, is actually sort of procuring the vaccines, they do so buying basically on behalf of the world's population, getting the best prices available, and then distributing it equitably, focusing on the high-need groups first. So, you know, that's obviously the elderly and health workers. And this is the way that it was set up, with the intention of covering, in every single country that's bought into the facility, 20% of the population will be covered first, and they will be your high-need groups. So a very sensible thing to have done. And the World Health Organization, Dr. Tedros, have been really pushing hard for countries to do this. But unfortunately, we've seen many countries sort of bypass it. They might put some money into it, but for their own populations, they're predominantly striking deals, bilateral deals, as it were, with pharmaceutical companies. And this has led to this very sort of fragmented and very opaque contracting, you know, to people not knowing what contracts have been set, what prices have been set, which has been leading to problems, you know, where, for example, the the South African government, desperate to get vaccines, because obviously it's a very high risk group and that we've been seeing uh, high numbers of cases in South Africa, have ended up paying a price twice that of the European Union for vaccines, uh, the AstraZeneca vaccines that are coming via India. Now, had we taken an approach of everyone going through the COVAX facility, that wouldn't have happened. So, of course, a lot of pharmaceutical companies are working on vaccines, and it is likely that there will be more approved in the coming months. Is that going to affect manufacturing and producing? And will that help this situation that you've described? Or is it more of a case of the way these contracts work, as opposed to the actual physical dose being available? It will help. Of course, what we're seeing at the moment is the problem of scarcity. Everyone's desperate for vaccines, that there aren't enough available at the moment. And, and you know, this has the tendency to bid at prices and result in hoarding. And, and this is the huge concern. Now, as more vaccines become available and get approved, so therefore, you know, the supply increases and this will help reduce these pressures. 
But we're all recognising that due to the risk of new variants coming along, that there's going to be needed to be ongoing research and increased manufacturing. And there could be the situation that, in effect, the whole world will need vaccinating on an annual basis, like vulnerable populations at the moment are frequently vaccinated against flu every year. With this virus, we've seen, because it is so dangerous and affects so many people, that huge proportion of the world's population might need vaccinating every year. So if we are talking about needing potentially billions of doses of the virus for the foreseeable future, you can see that this problem of scarcity is likely to persist. And it might be the situation that some of the vaccines that we have at the moment might not prove as as effective down the line. And all of a sudden, we're back into this situation that one particular vaccine becomes the best one and super scarce. And, you know, the, the price of that goes up and we're back into these situations. So we do need to resolve this. And, and you know, what as much we might be looking at is tremendous investment in, in manufacturing of the vaccines, but also of vials and, you know, all the equipment, you know, fridges potentially that are sort of needed for the cold chain. And again, you know, this will likely to call for, for global action to make sure that, you know, they're available. What we have seen, I I think, is some good signs of collaboration now between companies that have got sort of spare capacity in being able to make vaccines, but maybe have not got their own vaccines at at a very advanced stage or stop researching new vaccines into this particular coronavirus. They are allowing their manufacturing to be used by their competitors producing the other vaccines. And that's good. You know, that that is a sign that we are sort of looking at increasing capacity. But it's all these sort of imaginative ways that we need to be thinking about scaling up the supply, because we are likely to be needing these vaccines for quite a while yet, and new ones that potentially haven't been discovered yet. Just going back to this idea of equitable distribution that you've spoken about, we've seen in the past few months also a lot of institutes and organisations are commenting on the cost to the global economy if poorer countries don't have access to enough vaccine doses in order to develop something resembling herd immunity. I think the cost to the global GDP over the coming years is often put in the trillions, but most of these estimates agree that it would cost around $25 to supply lower income countries with the vaccine. I mean, to me, that cost-benefit analysis seems pretty straightforward. But why are we seeing such limited global efforts to work towards this? Is it just a case of available capital or is it more of a panicked, sensationalised approach to, as we were talking at the beginning, about hoarding vaccines? The Chatham House chair, Lord O'Neill, who, of course, was a, a former Treasury minister in a piece I think just before the G20 met, described this as a no-brainer, that, you know, this is deal of the century. The rate of return on in investing to make sure that the world gets vaccinated and we get on top of this is absolutely spectacular because, as the Financial Times showed just the other day, yes, it, it does run into trillions of dollars of, of lost economic output if we don't get on top of this. So, you know, sadly, I I think it is a a reflection of our collective failures to date to ensure that we weren't better prepared for this, that the manufacturing wasn't on stream faster to be able to scale up the, the production of vaccines. But clearly, it's not too late. You know, we have bodies like the G7 that the UK is chairing and the G20 that the Italian government is chairing. 
And it must be the top priority to ensure that we basically vaccinate the world equitably and very quickly, because, you know, this is perhaps the most important tool to be able to sort of overcome this pandemic and begin to build back better and, and, and restart the, the world economy. It's not the only tool we should emphasise. And I, I think it's it's likely that other non-pharmaceutical measures, you know, some, some degrees of social distancing and, and looking at the international health regulations and the whole public health system needs to be looked at as well. But the priority for this year must be to vaccinate the world equitably. And we have the resources to do it, both from governments, but then people are sort of looking at where there have been a big accumulations of wealth this year. Many of the world's billionaires have seen their personal wealth increase spectacularly this year. I think Oxfam, just at the time of the World Economic Forum discussions last week, the sort of the virtual Davos that was held, was sort of showing that, you know, just a small proportion of this increase in wealth that the world's billionaires were used, they'd be able to vaccinate the world no problem at all using, the, you know, those resources. So I think these are the questions we need to be asking about, you know, sort of ensuring that, that we come out of this crisis quickly to restart the world economy. Do you think thinking about the benefits of equitable vaccine distribution in GDP and economic terms is useful? Is there a way of making the case for equitable vaccine distribution that also at the same time advances the case for universal health coverage as a fundamental right, which I know you're a big proponent of? Mm -hmm. What is the moral underpinning and how efficient is it to think about distributing vaccines? in a way that purely aids economic terms? Is that is that an incentive that we should be buying into? Yes, I think that what we're recognising in countries across the world, in fact, the whole world is recognising that we have underinvested in health. I mean, this is a spectacular health crisis that has brought great misery and sadness and, and death to over 2 million people and, and counting so far, has had really big impact on the world economy and that we're seeing the consequences of that. But also politically, leaders that I think haven't responded well, if you even look at former President Trump in the United States, there have been political consequences. People are very angry, I, I would say, at how a number of leaders have, have not responded. So there are political consequences too. So I think in promoting the idea that we should be investing in tackling the pandemic, but health in general, that there are the health, the economic and the, and the political arguments. And I do think that, as, as you mentioned, that wrapping all this up under a wrapper of universal health coverage is a, a very sensible way to approach this. And it was interesting that just before the, the pandemic started, in fact, it was September 2019, all the world leaders met at the United Nations General Assembly, committing themselves to universal health coverage, this idea that everyone in the world gets the health services they need, but with financial protection. So, you know, the, it's in accessing health services, you're, you're not thrown into poverty. We're not just talking about curative health services here, we are talking about promotion and prevention for example, vaccines, and the whole range of health services should be available for everyone. So the situation we found ourselves coming through 2020 into 2021, this is almost you know, the perfect example of why we need universal health coverage. And, and you, you might say, 
how we respond to the COVID crisis is an acid test for the world's commitment to, to that ideal. So this is why I think people like the Director General of WHO, Dr. Tedros, are saying that they are so interrelated. He said that health security and universal health coverage are two sides of the same coin. And the type of approaches that we're talking here, about everyone in the world being vaccinated for free, basically, I mean, you know, we're talking about them being publicly financed, is exactly the, the principles and values behind universal health coverage. And I think that the logic of this and the fact that everyone recognises people have a right to these vaccines and it's in, in our interest that everyone is vaccinated, it's sort of extrapolating this into other infectious diseases and, and, and other health issues. I think you, you are going to see an acceleration of universal health reforms coming out of this crisis. This has happened before, you know, that universal health reforms have emerged out of crises for example, the UK after the Second World War, Japan after the Second World War, Thailand after the Asian financial crisis. So I think this is, you know, what one of the few sort of the silver linings, you might say, of, of this situation is that I think there is the potential for a lot more universal health reforms to come out of this crisis, maybe even in countries like the United States that famously doesn't have universal health coverage. What are the implications of getting this wrong? If we continue to hoard vaccines, if we continue to not invest in these big global initiatives to make sure that vaccines are available globally and at prices that are affordable, what could happen if we don't buy into this idea of our responsibility towards dealing with this pandemic on a really global level? I think that, you know, the consequences sadly could be dire and we just got to look back through history at the consequences of not dealing with epidemics and pandemics before. Obviously, sort of going back into medieval age, you know, that, that uh, we didn't have the, the science and ability to know really how to deal with the likes of the Black Death, but one can see the impact that had on the world economy going back then. And Spanish flu uh, in 1918, you know, sort of which killed tens of millions of, of people and, and, you know, had a devastating impact. So we have obviously and are going through a tremendous crisis at the moment. And I think that one just looks at the impact, the health impact, as I've mentioned, the economic impact, but as well the political impact. And I think, you know, th these are big worries and, and that, uh, you know, we, we've seen that, you know, the big row between the UK and the, and the EU at the, the beginning of this year. And, you know, th this could have big consequences as well, sort of the geopolitical consequences looking at the relationship between sort of China and Russia and the degree to which we're sort of looking at vaccine diplomacy now, that people are recognising this as a very scarce resource. This isn't the way we should be treating these things. But it's, it's not too late to turn this around. And I, I think that organisations like the World Health Organisation have done a fantastic job through this pandemic. They're trying to bring the world together. It's a, um, really shocking how poorly resourced WHO is to do its job. And, and we have this big independent review at the moment already saying that WHO has been underpowered and under-resourced to be able to do the job required of it. And again, one hopes that one of the lessons that we'll learn coming out of this is why we need a stronger, better resourced WHO to be able to sort of tackle pandemics in the future. And the, we will have pandemics like this again. 
we don't know whether it'll be next year, 10 years or another 100 years, but it will happen again. So I think, yeah, the, the consequences of doing nothing are pretty dire, but one would hope that humanity is smart enough and we now have the tools and, and knowledge at our, at our fingertips that will do a better job of making sure we don't get into this mess again. Rob, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Yeah, well, thank, thank you very much indeed for having me. I hope that was remotely useful. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Major Juliet Skingsley. Juliet is the Army Chief of General Staff Research Fellow in the International Security Programme at Chatham House, and she's also a serving lawyer in the British Army and an expert, among other things, on international law regarding cyber operations. Juliet, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Ben. It's great to have you with us. And I really enjoyed reading your expert comment from uh, late 2020 on countering threats below the threshold of war, which you can find on the Chatham House website now, listeners. And it's what we're going to be talking about today. Again, towards the end of last year, the UK government announced um, increased spending for the Ministry of Defence that was earmarked for a range of different capabilities, including sort of cyber operations and also capabilities in space, excitingly. And we're going to talk a bit about that, but we're also going to talk about this idea of the threshold of war and the international law that governs these murky spaces. And Julia, I just wondered if you could, a bit of a simple question maybe, but could you tell us a bit about the international laws and norms that already exist around how militaries conduct themselves in wartime? Sure. So that's a straightforward response for an international lawyer. So if we consider <laughs> that um, wartime or war is, is also referred to as an armed conflict, then many listeners will, of course, be aware that there is such a thing as the law of armed conflict, or LOAC, as it is commonly referred to in the UK military. The law of armed conflict is also known as international humanitarian law, or IHL. So there are a variety of different terms for the law that applies to war, but it all really refers to the same thing. So the short answer is there are international laws that apply to the military in an armed conflict or war. And this may actually seem surprising to many people, as they might be forgiven for believing, of course, that once war has started, what this means is that the rule of law has failed and broken down. Mm. And therefore, at that point, you know, anything goes. And there is a saying, you know, from ancient Rome, which can be translated as in times of war, the law falls silent. Mm. But in fact, nowadays, that isn't an accurate reflection of international law. And there is a long standing body of law which applies in wartime and it constrains parties to an armed conflict in how they conduct activities. So LOAC or IHL is really the cornerstone of how militaries should operate in an armed conflict. And every member of the armed forces, no matter what their rank, has a personal duty to make sure that they comply with the law of armed conflict. So now that you have that sort of context, the law of armed conflict or IHL it's very detailed. It's sometimes a, a very complex subject. But what I will try to do is, if you like, is to capture the essence of, of what it is mm. so that listeners can get a feel for its aims and its purposes and what it does. So, for example, many people will have heard of the Geneva Conventions, for example. And it is those really which form the basis of the law of armed conflict. The Geneva Conventions of 1949 and their later protocols 
are the international treaties which were designed to set out the limits to war in order to protect civilians, to protect those who are no longer taking part in the conflict, and also to protect the sick and the wounded and, and prisoners of war. And they really seek to ensure that both combatants and non-combatants are protected from unnecessary suffering. So in essence, they establish what can and can't be done on the battlefields, and it stops conflicts from degenerating into brutality or savagery so that there's a greater chance of peace being restored. And in large part, the Geneva Conventions were a response to the Second World War and the horrors that many suffered during that conflict. And the four Geneva Conventions themselves have been ratified by all states, and so they are universally applicable, and they apply to any international armed conflict. Interestingly, even where war has not been formally declared, or where one of the parties to the conflict doesn't acknowledge or recognise that they are in a state of war. So in that way, they are universally applicable. And in the UK military, the way that we capture the principles that are enshrined in the Geneva Conventions is to break it down into four key principles. And this might be a helpful way for listeners to understand what they cover. So mm. the principles are necessity, humanity, proportionality and distinction. And this is a very helpful way of understanding what the law of war is all about. And if you look at those four key principles, you will soon see what it is designed to achieve. And broadly speaking, that is to ensure that the means and the methods of warfare are not unlimited. So they ensure that there is reduced unnecessary suffering, the inhumane treatment of combatants and non-combatants, and whilst also sparing civilians, of course, as much as possible. So if you look at the principle of distinction, for example, this broadly means that you can't attack civilians or civilian objects. A lot more could be said there about civilians who take part in hostilities, of course, as that's a slightly separate issue. But it, broadly speaking, that's what distinction is all about. And necessity as the second principle, means that you can only use the degree of force necessary to achieve a legitimate purpose, so namely to defeat the enemy as soon as possible with the minimum loss of life and resources. Humanity captures and enshrines the prohibition on inflicting unnecessary suffering. So in other words, once you have achieved your military aim, you should not inflict further suffering. And lastly, proportionality which enshrines the idea that you must assess whether the expected losses from a military action would exceed the advantage. So broadly speaking, what that means is there will always be unavoidable civilian casualties, but these must not be excessive in proportion to the expected military advantage. So I could talk you know, a lot more about each of these principles, and there's clearly a lot of legal and academic discussion on them over the past sort of 70 years, but in essence, for those listeners who are not international lawyers, that hopefully captures what IHL is all about. And what you begin to see is a picture which is clear that there are constraints on how parties to an armed conflict conduct themselves. And the Geneva Conventions themselves are now over 70 years old, so they're very long-standing treaties. So that, that is really IHL, but there are, of course, other treaties that are relevant mm. to an armed conflict. For example, the, the Chemical Weapons Convention, the Anti-Personnel Landmine Convention, and the Biological Weapons Convention, amongst several others. And again, all of these limit the means and methods of warfare to ensure that unnecessary suffering is kept to a minimum. And there's also, on top of that, there's international criminal law, 
which is slightly different because it concerns the investigation and prosecution of individuals rather than the state for very serious crimes such as genocide, war crimes or crimes against humanity. And these are crimes which are so serious that it is deemed in the interests of the international community as a whole to punish. And of course, a number of international criminal courts and tribunals have been established to investigate and prosecute these types of crimes. And there's also international human rights law, which places obligations on states during an armed conflict to protect civilians. And clearly, you know, there's a lot more that can be said about all these areas of law, but hopefully that gives you a flavour as to the constraints and the protections that currently exist when engaging in an armed conflict. Thanks so much for that overview. That was amazing to pack so much into that. So obviously there are, as you've outlined, a plethora of legal institutions that help to govern this space. I suppose my question that I wanted to come to next is maybe a bit of a kind of undergrad student question, but how do we define armed conflict in this space? Because obviously a lot of this comes back to military operations at times of war. And yet in your expert comment that you wrote for Chatham House, you're you're talking about how militaries are having to counter threats below the threshold of war. So I was just wondering if you could tell us a bit about how that threshold is defined and maybe also explain the term that you use a lot in your expert comment, the grey zone, for our listeners who maybe haven't read it yet. Sure. So I think probably the best way to tackle that question is to to talk about what the grey zone is, because that will distinguish it very clearly from a state of of armed conflict. Mm. So it's really important, and it may seem obvious, but it's very important, first of all, to distinguish between what has been termed the grey zone and an armed conflict or war, because the two are clearly not the same. Mm -hmm. And this has implications for the application of international law. So the term grey zone itself has emerged over the past five to 10 years, and it describes or explains the current state of affairs in which states find themselves in a situation where they are not at war or in an open armed conflict, but at the same time, neither are they in a peaceful situation. So you may have heard other similar terms that are used to describe this, such as asymmetric conflict or sub-threshold operations. But they all describe a situation in which unfriendly acts are taking place, sometimes on a regular basis. But these acts are below the threshold of acts of war or an armed conflict. So, for example, a state might find itself the victim of regular cyber attacks or online disinformation campaigns conducted by another state or a non-state actor. And there are a range of means and methods that can be employed in the grey zone. So election interference by a foreign state could be a good example of grey zone activity. But there's also other elements such as economic coercion or even use of proxy forces to pursue military campaigns that can then be denied by the sponsoring state. And the critical point of these grey zone activities is that they are ambiguous in that the victim or the target state does not always have a clear path in terms of how to respond or indeed who is responsible. So ambiguity and deception is a key characteristic of grey zone operations. And the whole point is that the responsible state or non-state actor normally deliberately keeps the nature of the threat or the harm that it seeks to cause below the threshold of war, because either they do not want to end up in a state of war, which they might well lose, or because they simply cannot match the military strength of the target state. 
So that is really the essence of what the gray zone is all about. And you can see that this presents states with dilemmas as to how to respond, if at all. And these sorts of gray zone activities are proliferating and have led to a lot of debate about how states should respond and also how this fits within the current international law framework. So for example, to sort of highlight the difficulty more clearly, if we consider an armed attack on a state, then under international law, states have the right to use force in self-defense under the UN Charter, that's very clear. But in the gray zone, the sorts of unfriendly acts that take place usually do not rise to the level of an armed attack. So target states may feel they have no clear or obvious response to deal with the threat. Mm. And a victim state, therefore, on the face of it, appears to face a very difficult choice between doing nothing and thereby being constantly subject to ongoing low-level attacks or threats, which of course can cause harm in one way or another, or on the other hand, doing something about it, but thereby potentially escalating the situation to something more, for example, if they use force. So you can see the dilemma that this creates. And not only that, but the other element of gray zone activities is that these threats are usually shrouded in mystery and deception. And this means that it's very difficult often to establish or attribute who is responsible particularly in relation to cyber attacks, which are one of the most common methods or means, if you like, of gray zone activities. So how can states take action in response if they don't necessarily know who the perpetrator is? And in very simple terms, clearly if, if action is taken and you've got the wrong guy, then this can cause very serious problems and potentially escalate a situation. So you can see therefore just how difficult it is to deal with gray zone threats. And another thing that should be highlighted in the context of the gray zone is a key strategy is to undermine faith in democratic institutions by deliberately stoking up social unrest or prejudice. And a lot of study has gone into this and into the use of online disinformation campaigns in this regard, looking at the use of social media bots and trolls, for example, which are used en masse to do this and which attack Western values, democratic values, and divide and manipulate public sentiment in order to cause people to lose faith in their own democracies and to stir up hatred and division. So the aim of some of these gray zone methods is not necessarily to win, but to confuse and to undermine belief in democratic values and to divide societies. And of course, if you consider that in the context of the pace of technological change, and the huge volumes of information that are now available to people at speed. This means that there are even more tools and methods and vectors available now for adversaries to use this in order to spread false information, which seeks to undermine you know, values and principles. So the question really is, how do states respond to, to all of this kind of threat in the grey zone? How far are militaries adapting their capabilities for action in this grey zone? And to what extent are you seeing states accept that there is a role for the military in this space? Because I suppose there are, as you said, there are a range of possible responses and, and it isn't necessarily military institutions that should be acting in response. As the term grey zone and its associated threats and, and challenges and tactics have assumed a place really in political discourse, there's now an increasing realisation that 
militaries have to reevaluate and adapt the way in which they operate, as adversaries often no longer appear to see a distinction between war and peace. And this has to be done also whilst being mindful of the risks of escalation. So the question is, how do states maintain deterrence sort of below the threshold of war? I think there's increasingly a focus on emerging technology to help meet these threats in the grey zone and investment and research in these areas is clearly critical. So an example could be use of artificial intelligence, which can be used to enhance situational awareness, processing large amounts of data very quickly from lots of different sources. And AI can be used not only to ascertain, for example, where an adversary may be operating, but also to help predict certain behaviours. And this can be done at a pace and a depth that a human operator just simply wouldn't be able to manage. But it's not only the use of the new tech itself, but also the deterrent effects that this emerging technology could have. And the critical point really is maintaining a situational awareness. So where our adversaries are operating and what are they doing and why? And specifically in relation to the UK, there have been recent announcements in late 2020, which show that the UK military is itself undergoing something of a sea change at the moment in how it seeks to operate in this environment. So at the end of September, the Chief of the Defence Staff, General Carter, announced the integrated operating concept, which is said to represent the most significant change in military thought in the UK in several generations. And this in large part represents the UK's response, or the UK military's response rather, in how to deal with grey zone challenges. And in announcing this concept, General Carter was clear that more of the same in terms of how the UK has traditionally responded will not be enough. And he stressed that the UK military must fundamentally change its thinking if, as he said, we are not to be overwhelmed. So the key elements of this new concept are really to adopt a much more forward deployed posture on a more persistent basis below the threshold of war in order to stop the UK's adversaries from achieving their objectives. And this includes not only supporting and helping capacity building in other states, but also strengthening UK alliances and improving what the military terms is interoperability, so that the UK and its allies can share the burden of meeting these grey zone threats. Mm. But overall, though, I mean, the most important element of this new concept is that the UK military now seeks much greater integration, not only with allies, but also across government. So General Carter refers to this as a national enterprise, which integrates, you know, the traditional domains of land, air, maritime, space, and then cyber with one another, but also with other government departments so that the military no longer operates in silos, but as a whole force to achieve a maximum effect. And this is what is referred to as multi-domain integration. And I suppose the watchwords in this respect are resilience and partnership. And we expect further details next year with the announcement of the Integrated Review of Security, Defence, Development and Foreign Policy, which will define the UK's long-term strategic aims for national security and foreign policy and defence. And the aim there is really for the UK to ascertain what the threat is and how this can be met. So, of course, this will include more detail on how defence can better meet grey zone challenges 
And in relation to what I said about technology previously, the UK military is also to undergo significant modernization in terms of its technology. Many will be aware of the uplift in the defence budget announced very recently by the Defence Secretary, where space, cyber and artificial intelligence will all receive significant investment. So if we just go back to the grey zone for a minute, then if one considers that one method of countering grey zone challenges is to better use data and information with today's technology, then a critical part of this is to make sure that the data can be understood and used to best effect. So investment in AI, for example, will help to do that and it will help decision making by operators in the field. And it's also worth specifically mentioning the investment in cyber capabilities, which is a key part of the new defence budget. The National Cyber Force will partner defence and intelligence to conduct cyber operations, including those involving the military. And the Secretary of Defence recently confirmed that the UK is willing to engage in, in offensive cyber operations if required in respect of its adversaries, including foreign states if necessary. And this is not the first time that the UK has acknowledged use of offensive cyber operations, but clearly this could have utility in meeting grey zone threats. Juliet, thank you very much for that. It sounds then that there are so many different sources of monitoring and checks and balances that the corpus of international law already provides. But I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about how states can maintain the legitimacy of of operations below the threshold of war. Obviously, this grey zone that you've been describing is an incredibly murky area. There's all sorts, a whole range of different actors, state and non-state actors. It's very, very difficult to work out who's causing what and what's come from where. (laughs) And so my question is, and you've sort of touched on it already in terms of what the UK is doing internationally to develop red lines and norms on this, but what must states like the UK do to make the case for the legitimacy of their operations below the threshold of war? And what are the risks if they fail to do this? So the key, I think, to making the case for any operation is to ensure that it is clearly justified by reference not only to the facts, but also how it aligns with international and in some cases domestic law. So, you know, it's clear that threats in the grey zone are proliferating. The UK needs to meet these threats by seeking new ways to counter them. And this has been set out very clearly already by the Chief of Defence Staff and the Secretary of State for Defence recently. And the Chief of Defence Staff is very clear, you know, that more of the same in terms of how the UK has traditionally responded will not be enough. But where there is a need to conduct sub-threshold or grey zone operations, then this should be done you know, with clear reference to international law. And not only that, but be seen to be done by reference to international law. So I think there is great value here in a strategic narrative in this respect. Mm -hmm. The UK is very clear on the importance of adhering to international law and its principles and also to longstanding UK values. And it's important, therefore, that there is a continuing narrative which emphasises this on an ongoing basis. The UK can make its case not only by presenting details as to the facts, you know, where it can about the threat, but also in explaining how the particular response is justified under international law. And this is always the case, but particularly where use of the military is concerned. Another very critical aspect will be securing the support of allies in these sorts of operations. So this goes a long way to legitimizing any response in the gray zone. For example, You know, if we look at the UK response to the Salisbury attack in 2018, 
where nerve agents were used on Sergei and Yulia Skripal. And this is a really good example of how to do this well. So the UK response on the one hand included diplomatic sanctions, expulsion of Russian intelligence officers, freezing Russian state assets. But perhaps the most powerful element of the response was the way in which the UK garnered wide international support for its actions. So NATO and the EU backed the UK on this whilst over 100 other Russian intelligence officers were expelled from other countries. And this sort of solidarity was really unprecedented and really lent a lot of strength and legitimacy to the UK response to this grey zone operation. So that is something that certainly should be utilised as much as possible. And in tandem with this, of course, is the increased emphasis now on collectively naming and shaming those responsible for cyber attacks. And if there's no such justification, going back to my earlier point, for operations in the grey zone, then this in itself risks undermining not only the rules-based international order, but also the validity of these legal principles. It leaves the UK and potentially other states more vulnerable to challenge as to the justification for its actions. And it means that where the UK seeks to hold adversaries to account for violations of international law in the future, then that may be more difficult to do so if its own actions have not been justified in this context. So the relevance and the importance of international law must be continued to be made clear. And any adversaries who seek to undermine that or to exploit what they perceive to be gaps in the law should really be given no space in this sense to try and show that international law is is not fit for purpose. Thank you. Juliet, this has been such a fascinating conversation. I just have one more question that I wanted to ask, and it's probably a bit of an impossible question as it is. (laughs) But we've obviously spoken a lot today about cyber in particular as as one aspect of grey zone operations that are necessitating greater attention. But I wondered whether you think that cyber represents the greatest grey zone threat to UK national security? And and if not, what else should we be worried about? As normal people who who are not involved in the legal aspects of this conversation, what are the big grey zone threats? It's a great question because, you know, everybody you ask will give you a slightly different answer, I'm sure. And certainly cyber attacks will, of course, continue, unfortunately, to present a threat in many different ways from potential threats to, you know, critical national infrastructure to election interference, and even, as we've seen recently, to attacking efforts to deal with the COVID pandemic. And especially now with the advent of 5G and so much of our lives being conducted online, there are clearly more vectors that are open to nefarious actors in terms of attacks in cyberspace. And the reports as recently as the 13th of December that the US Commerce and Treasury Department suffered a significant cyber intrusion with you know, FireEye and Microsoft also announcing a supply chain attack on software, which compromised you know, the US Department of Homeland Security. It really highlights the ongoing seriousness of this kind of threat. Absolutely. But I think linked to that is the threat from you know, the spread of disinformation. And this has really received a lot more attention recently, which seeks to you know, undermine democratic societies and their institutions. And if you consider that a lot of grey zone activity concerns the use or misuse of information, either through social media campaigns or foreign election interference, such as the 2016 US presidential election, then the aim of those responsible seems to be to influence societies by undermining faith in their own democracies. 
But in very simple terms, you know, if no one is certain anymore as to the truth of things because of disinformation campaigns, and this is a hugely worrying and destabilizing phenomenon for societies. And not only that, but of course, information can also be used to distort and manipulate facts on the ground in grey zone operations to mask what's really going on. So efforts to resolve this issue of the impact of disinformation and how information is used to pursue grey zone operations will also be very critical in the near future. But rather than you know, ending on that slightly negative note, we should go back, therefore, to what I said earlier about sticking to long-standing legal principles, as well as working with allies and you know, like-minded states in doing so. These are tools, and this is a tool which we already have, and it can be a very powerful strategic tool in and of itself. You know, I heard a a military colleague refer to this recently as our key terrain or our vital ground, which is very military terminology. But I think it's very fitting here in that it reflects just how critical use of and adherence to international law is in these incredibly challenging times. And whilst it's clear that changes in our methods to meet grey zone threats are needed, The UK's adherence to and promotion of the existing legal framework, and I hope I've done enough in this interview to illustrate just how much international law we already have that applies in this space. You know, the promotion of this legal framework can and should be, you know, a central pillar from which all other activities could radiate. And obviously, if states get this wrong and if states start to somehow, you know, undermine existing legal principles, then then obviously that could be, you know, the the greatest threat to themselves in the long term and their adversaries won't really need to do much more. Major Juliet Skinsley, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. All right. So that's it for this episode. Thanks very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed those two interviews. In the show notes, you'll find some links to some of the content that Rob and Juliet and our other colleagues have been working on around vaccination and also around around the grey zone and hybrid warfare. Pretty interesting stuff. We will be back in a couple of weeks with a new episode, um, two new interviews and another co-host, very excitingly. No disrespect to Amrit, she smashed today, but we're trying to mix it up a bit. I just wanted to leave you this week with just a few words on um, my past co-host, Agnes Frimston, just flagging for those of you who may not be aware, but Agnes has actually moved on to other things. She's left Chatham House, obviously going to miss her hugely. She helped set up the podcast with me back in 2018. And since then, we've shared so many really really interesting interviews and she's brought so many amazing ideas and perspectives to the guests that we've had on and she's built it from the ground up and uh, I wish she were here to be able to talk about the highlights for her but definitely for me I really enjoyed listening to her interview with Greg Jenner about the history of celebrity politics of celebrity obviously speaking to journalists like Ronan Farrow and Anas Arameo Anas speaking to the three Alistairs, Alistair Campbell, Alistair Darling and Alistair Burt, the three Alistairs of UK politics and a host of other super interesting episodes. One sort of final one I remember very vividly is an interview about the power of women's anger where Agnes and I both interviewed um, Soraya Chamali, 
and uh, I would very much recommend going back and listening to that episode. It was fascinating and also quite scary because they do turn on me a bit and, and put me on the spot a bit about what the problem is with all men. And I don't have good answers. But anyway, would definitely recommend listening to that. So yeah, so thank you, Agnes, and um, all the best for your future projects. So that's all from me. It's all from Amrit. Thank you very much to you for joining this episode. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate us and subscribe on whichever podcast app you have, as it makes it far easier for other listeners to find us. And if you want to keep up with the work of Chatham House, just follow us on social media. We're at Chatham House pretty much everywhere. So until next time, thanks for joining. <laughs>